time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, friends and patriots. Welcome to today's edition of the financial physician. Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner and your money doctor. We get together two times a week. We have our Sunday podcast, which is this podcast, which comes up Sunday mornings, usually by 9 a.m. Definitely, uh, that's the latest that comes out. Uh, lately, I've been uploading it at 6 or 7 a.m., so uh, make sure you're on our, our list uh, following the show at Podomatic. People have uh, emailed me and said, Lou, I didn't get the email about the show until the next day. That's because you're getting it from my website, and the person that runs my website uh, is usually delayed in getting it up. It's usually up the next morning. So if you want to know exactly when it comes up, if you follow the program at Podomatic, not at thefinancialphysician.com, when you when, when the, you go to thefinancialphysician.com, you go to the podcast, and it links you to Podomatic. There's a place there that says follow. If you hit follow, you will be notified immediately when I upload a podcast. So we do our Sunday podcast up by 9 a.m. The midweek podcast is up Wednesday, uh, usually by 4 p.m. in the afternoon, maybe a little bit later, maybe a little bit earlier, depending on on how I get it done. Uh, it takes a lot of time to produce these podcasts. You know, it was much easier for, you know, for 23 years I was on the radio. You know, you, you know I'd prepare for the show. I walk in, the light goes on, you do two hours of radio, you go home. Uh, we had a sound engineer and all that. Uh, but producing the podcast myself in my own studio, uh, I'm the audio engineer, I'm the editor, uh, I'm the host, I'm everything. Uh, so uh, I was kind of surprised to find out how many hours it takes to produce uh, each of these podcasts. And now we're doing two a week, uh, and I still run a financial planning practice. So uh, we do our best to get you the podcast on time so far, so good. I think I'm starting to master the technology. We had some issues the first uh, a few weeks, but I think I have the program down well now, and uh, hopefully we're giving you a quality podcast. And uh, the only way the podcast grows is by you sharing it, telling your friends about it, emailing the link to friends, family, put it on your social media, put it anywhere where you think people could benefit uh, by this program, because there's nothing like it. On the financial position, we talk money, markets, politics, current events, and anything that affects your life. Let's start off today's show talking about what I thought was a very momentous uh, financial issue for the country this week. Fitch Rating Service uh, joined S&P and lowered the United States credit rating from AAA to AA+. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. It certainly was a big deal in 2011 um, when S&P did it. You know, and S&P did it uh, in response to debt ceiling uh, wrangling that was going on. And it caused major volatility in the financial markets. And 
And this did too, mainly the bond market. Uh, the bond market dropped. Yields have uh, gone up dramatically in the last few days of the week. Uh, but the stock market, you know, went down a few days. Friday, it, it rebounded after the unemployment figures came out uh, and uh, less jobs were created. Why is that good? Well, less jobs are created, the slower the economy, the less likely that the Federal Reserve will continue raising interest rates. Uh, and that's uh, usually good. Uh, for stocks and and bonds as well. So let's start off talking about the downgrade. Uh, it was uh, came out of the blue. I didn't expect it. I don't think the markets were quite expecting it. But for all intents and purposes, it was a big yawn in the stock market. You know, it wasn't dra- dramatic drops. Yeah, the market corrected a little bit over the last few days, uh, but nothing dramatic. Uh, but we did see some dramatic dramatic moves, as I said, in the bond market, where the yield on a ten year Treasury jumped from about 3.85 to about 4.05. That's a pretty big jump. And as a matter of fact, Friday, before the employment figures came out, the 10-year Treasury yield was at 4.20%. And why is that important? Uh, It's important because, A, mortgage rates are determined by what the 10-year is. So that's a big deal. Uh, And with uh, interest rates going up in the the 10-year, we see almost an instantaneous increase um, in mortgage rates. And we'll, we'll touch on that when we review financial markets. I'll go over uh, mortgage rates. But uh, 7%, and if things continue in the bond market like they have been, uh, it's going to go even higher. Uh, certainly not good for the economy, not good if you're buying a home, not good if you're selling a home. Uh, and the big problem, like we said here, is that uh, people aren't selling homes because they don't want to replace the 3.5% mortgage with a Seven, seven and a quarter percent mortgage. Could you blame them? No. So there's no supply out there. And uh, the real estate market is really frozen right now. And I feel bad for my friends and family who are in the real estate business, real estate agents, realtors. Uh, they're really hurting right now. I mean, it was gravy times uh, for many years when interest rates were very low. Uh, but now uh, real estate agents are struggling um, because there's nothing to sell. Uh, also, credit conditions are tightening up, so people are having more and more difficulty getting mortgages approved. So interest rates drive everything, and it's really important to understand that. And when a rating service lowers the rating in a government bond or a, uh, a corporate bond or a municipal bond, uh, the price of those bonds go down and interest rates go up. It's just the nature of it. Why do I want to invest in a bond um, that has lower uh, ratings, unless you compensate me with higher rates. So no longer is the U.S. debt AAA rated. Once S&P lowered it back in 2011, for all intents and purposes, the U.S. is AA+. Uh, but I find that I find that it should be much lower, given our debt situation and uh, uh, given our uh, deficits. Uh, uh, I think if they were being honest, they probably rated B. Um, maybe that's a little too low, uh, but uh, but this is a big deal, and uh, financial media kind of downplayed it. Ah, it's only Fitch, and you know what does it mean? Well, our Treasury Secretary was pretty pissed about this, and she came out and she made a, a pretty strong statement. This is what she had to say. I'm quoting: "I strongly disagree with Fitch's ratings decision. The change by Fitch ratings." 
uh, announced today is arbitrary and based on outdated data. Fitch's quantitative ratings model declined markedly between 2018 and 2020, and yet Fitch is announcing its change now, despite the progress we see in many of the indicators that Fitch relies on for its decisions. Many of these measures, including those related to governance, have shown improvement over the course of this administration. Yeah, right. Uh, With the passage of bipartisan legislation to address the debt limit, there is no debt limit right now. That's one of the reasons why uh, they noted that in their decision uh, to lower our rating. Between now and 2025, there is no debt limit. And you know they're going to take advantage of it, and they are. They're issuing trillions of dollars of debt in this window. and uh, that's one of the reasons. So she says, oh, well, we have uh, we addressed the debt limit. No, you didn't. You just eliminated it. Invest in infrastructure. Make other investments in America's competitiveness. So uh, she's not really happy about it. Um, and then she goes on to say, oh, and the United States is on a good enough historically pa- uh, fast economic recovery from a deep recession. Today, the unemployment rate is near historic lows. Inflation has come down significantly since last summer. And last week's GDP report shows that the U.S. economy continues to grow. I don't think Fitch believes the numbers that come out from this administration or any administration for the U.S. government, by the way. The American economy remains the world's largest and most dynamic economy with the deepest and most liquid financial markets in the world. To build on this, President Biden and I have focused on making critical investments in our country's core economic strength and productive capacity. President Biden and I are committed to fiscal sustainability. The most recent debt limit legislation included over $1 trillion in deficit reduction and improved our fiscal trajectory. Looking forward, President Biden has put forward a budget that would reduce the deficit by $2.6 trillion over the next decade through a balanced approach that would support investments for the long term. Do you really believe that we're going to... Uh, lower uh, the deficit by $2.6 trillion over the next decade. Really. It's called gaslighting. You know, they just keep lying to us. Um, so she said that the downgrade was based on outdated data. She's right. U.S. interest expense no longer is $500 billion a year. It's now over a trillion dollars and growing. As U.S. debt matures and gets rolled over at the higher interest rates they have to pay right now. So uh, the financial situation in the United States is deteriorating quite rapidly. The economy is not growing. Um, and you'll see uh, in a second what I mean by that. I'll give you some, some numbers here. And, it, and it's interesting, you know, Fitch was talking about the erosion of governance as one of their reasons. And they said this is over the last 20 years, including on fiscal and debt matters, notwithstanding the June bipartisan agreement to suspend the debt limit until January 2025. The repeated debt limit political standoffs and last-minute resolutions have eroded confidence in fiscal management. And they also go on to say the political situation in the country with the January 6th incident and uh, things that are going on that we talk about all the time on this program uh, is another reason. They went on to uh, state that rising general government deficits are another reason. We expect the general government deficit to rise to 6.3% of GDP in 2023, up from 3.7% in 2022. 
reflecting cyclically weaker federal revenues, new spending initiatives, and higher interest burden. So, no, everything isn't so good. Uh, and uh, although Bidenomics is doing a great job, we have to, you know, they, they keep pushing the Bidenomics issue. But the question is, is where is interest rates going to go? I mean, uh, we can't keep having uh, interest on the federal debt continue to rise at the rate it is. And it seems that the Fed is hell-bent in keeping interest rates high for some time, which means that more and more of our low interest, one and a half, two percent debt that's come and due, it's never paid off, it's just rolled over and issued as a new debt, new bond, will be issued at higher and higher interest rates. Making our debt service go up, making our budget deficit go up, making our need to borrow go up, and making everybody's life more difficult. Whether it's buying a car, buying a house, using your credit card, borrowing money to fund the government deficit, corporations borrowing money, municipalities borrowing money. Uh, but the Fed seems hell-bent on continuing to do it. Uh, and uh, it's really a concern. But this is, uh, don't let anybody minimize uh, this downgrade. It's the beginning of a trend uh, that we're seeing. Now, speaking of interest rates, um, I want to clarify some things on different interest rates. I received an email from a guy named Paul from Canada, and this is what he wrote. He said, um, "He said, uh, good morning, Lou. I was hoping during one of your podcasts you could help clarify about interest rates. I'm from Canada, but I assume the interest rate terms in the U.S. are the same. What confuses me are all the terms and why the differences in rates. In Canada, the Bank of Canada rate, the equivalent of the Fed funds rate, is 5%. Yet the prime rate is 7.2% in Canada, and in Canada, the, um, and 8.5% in the USA. Next, the 10-year government bond in Canada and the USA is roughly 4%. Furthermore, in Canada, home equity line of credits are 0.25% above prime. Then mortgage rates in Canada are one-year variable rate at 7%, and a one-year fixed rate at 7.29%. And a five-year fixed is 5.94%. My question is, what does each term mean and why the differences in interest rates? I'm so confused. Paul from Ontario, Canada. All right, Paul, let's talk about interest rates and what the differences are. All right? It's not that complicated. All right, the Fed funds rate, and I assume the Canada rate, which I think is the same, is the rate that the central banks control. And this is the rate that banks have to charge each other for overnight loans. And why would a bank need an overnight loan? Because they have to have a certain amount of reserves based on their deposits each and every day at the close of business. So if we're short a couple of billion dollars, I borrowed from a bank overnight that has more than they need. I pay them the interest rate, which is the Fed's fund rate, and I give them back the money the next day. I'm simplifying it, but that's basically what it is. And that's the rate that all other rates are derived by. And almost all other rates are a markup to the bank rate or the federal funds rate or the Canada rate. Now, what is the prime rate? Well, the prime rate is the interest rate that financial institutions charge their best, most creditworthy customers. And other loans are usually the prime rate plus additional interest. Like a car, a car loan may be prime plus two. So whatever the prime rate is, you add to a 2%, and that's the car loan rate. Now, of course, a variable rate adjusts higher as the Fed and the prime rate move higher or lower. 
Usually the adjustments are over a certain period of time. Maybe it's a year. That's usually, but you have some variable rate mortgages that adjust every three years or every five years. They're fixed for that period. They don't change. Uh, Then after three or five years, they adjust based on the interest rate environment at the time. A fixed rate loan, of course, is exactly what it says. You pay the same interest rate for the duration of the loan. And many people took advantage of that for the many years that we had a zero interest rate policy here in the United States where mortgage rates were three and a half, three, you know, three and three quarters, uh, historically low. And they stayed there for a very long time. And that's what fueled uh, the real estate bubble that we're living at now. I mean, if you live in the United States, you've seen real estate prices pretty much go through the moon. Uh, and uh, we're seeing that we've seen that across the board in smaller starter homes. Uh, to mid-sized homes, to luxury homes. I mean, the prices have gone up ridiculously. Uh, real estate was a place to be over the last 10 years or so, maybe even longer. You know, we had the crisis in 2008, the big mortgage crisis. We had the bubble burst in real estate. And smart money, which smart money always does, was buying real estate when nobody else wanted it. When there was tons of foreclosures, tons of bank-owned properties, Uh, But now we're seeing the opposite happen. We're seeing interest rates go up. But as I said earlier, it's a weird dynamic right now because people don't want to sell their homes because they don't want to give up that very low historic mortgage rate that's fixed for 30 years. Uh, Why do you want to sell your house and get a get a loan for 30 year fixed rate loan at seven and a quarter? Uh, That's ridiculous. Nobody wants to do that. And that's why there's no inventory. And that's what's held the prices up also uh, of real estate is if there's no supply uh, and there is some demand, uh, prices are going to be steady. And in some areas of the country, I know even here where I am in New Jersey, many markets are even still continuing to go up and we're still seeing multiple bidders for properties. Not the same as it was a couple of years ago, uh, but it's still there. So I hope that clarifies interest rates for you. Um, the, uh, the 10-year bond rate is determined by the bond market, not by the government. But look, if interest rates are going up, people are going to sell off lower-yielding bonds. As bond prices go down, interest rates go up. It, it's, a, it's a self-correcting factor. Now, when interest rates were zero for 12 years, you know, the 10-year Treasury bond was yielding one half of 1%. And now this morning, I'm recording this on Friday, uh, this morning we saw the 10-year Treasury touch 4.20% uh, prior to the um, the labor figures coming out, and uh, it reversed a little bit uh, in the afternoon of Friday as I'm recording this segment. Um, uh, right now, we're looking at 4.08% on the 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury bond. Still higher, much higher for the week, and certainly we'll have a negative impact on mortgage rates, which are bound to, to stay over 7% for some time now. Friday morning, they, they did announce the July payrolls. Uh, and this is such a joke. Uh, uh, you know, I've been railing against this for probably 10, 15 years. This number is probably the most fudged number that comes out. Because what's most important to an administration is jobs, right? You know, that's most important to people. Now, it doesn't matter whether or not you're getting these jobs or not or if they're real, but if they come out and they tell you it's real and that unemployment rate is going down, well, maybe you think so. Uh, Unless you're one of those millions of people who are unemployed, well, that's a different story. So they announced a job figure and uh, 
economists were expecting 200,000 new jobs to be created in July. It came in uh, at 187, uh, which is slightly lower than expected. But the market was concerned that it may come out, you know, much higher than expected, which would have been very negative uh, for the bond market. And you would have saw interest rates continue uh, to skyrocket uh, as they were prior to the announcement. So this was a negative surprise. Now, what they did also, which is this just illustrates how they fudged the numbers. Uh, they 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 moved downward. They they did a downward revision for June and July by 49,000 jobs. So they told us 49,000 jobs are created in uh, uh, May and June, uh, and they had to revise them down. Uh, so this tells us that the labor market is softening now. And this is what we expected with uh, the Fed's raise in interest rates. Um, but, you know, um, they just manufactured this data. This 187000 will probably be revised down a month or two from now, as they always do. But it sounds good. I mean, it's not too bad. Uh, so May was revised down by 25,000 jobs from 306,000 to 281,000. June was revised down by 24,000 uh, from 209,000 to 185,000. Uh, now, just to show how ridiculous this data manipulation is, uh, every month this year, they've revised down the number. Every single month. So we'll see if they revise down July. Now, if they revise it down substantially, that's very weak jobs number. Not good for the economy. Now, if the rigging wasn't bad enough, as far as the numbers go, the birth death model, you won't believe this, added 250,000 phantom jobs to this figure. What's the birth death model, if you don't know? Uh, it's a, a number that the Bureau of Labor Statistics pulls out of their butt uh, where they estimate how many new business, small businesses were created, that's birth, uh, or how many businesses died, uh, that's, uh, or closed, that's death. So the birth-death model, they estimate, all right, let's estimate how many new businesses were created versus how many were closed, and let's estimate how many jobs each of these businesses hired, and we'll add that to the numbers. So they added 280,000 to this number. Where did they get that number? They made it up. So that tells me that without this number, let's do the math, you subtract the 280,000 from the 187,000, uh, we actually had negative. Uh, well, we had like a negative 93,000 jobs. But that was... Can't have that where prior to election year. That would look terrible for the Biden administration. So let's make up uh, this birth death model. This is the part of the jobs report that allows them to make this number anything they want. And these are never revised. Uh, this is just out there uh, and uh, you just have to accept it. Now, the unemployment rate unexpectedly dropped back to 3.5% from 3.6%. Uh, and uh, the Fed is expecting that the unemployment rate will spike to 4% by the, year, uh, by the end of the year. Um, and they're hoping that happens. Why would the Fed hope that? Well, they want to see the economy slowing down because they believe that inflation is being affected by, um, by a strong economy 
and payroll numbers. So they want you to lose your job. They don't want you to get a new job if you're unemployed. They want you to be poor. They don't want you to spend any money because if you spend money, you can push prices up. So these numbers are a joke. They always have been a joke. Uh, the economy is really good, right? Well, this came out this week. Um, uh, 100-year-old trucking company called Yellow Trucking. We've all seen their trucks. They have the R. It's funny. They have like an orange sign that says yellow on it. Um, but uh, Yellow Trucking uh, declared bankruptcy this week. 100-year-old trucking company. Uh, and um, uh, 30,000 people are laid off. And they're going to be looking for jobs somewhere. So uh, it's a unionized company. Uh, the Teamsters Union uh, has been in a battle with the company uh, to get raises, uh, significant raises for their drivers. Uh, a week ago, the union canceled the strike that was uh, prompt, uh, prompted by the company failing to contribute to its pension and health insurance plans. It can't because it's obviously bankrupt. So the union granted the company an extra month to make the required payments, but by midweek, the company had stopped picking up freight from its customers and was making deliveries only to only a freight already in its system. Um, So this is a sad day for a lot of Americans. You see a 100-year-old trucking company, um, and we've all seen their their trucks going down the highway. And, And what's interesting about yellow trucking is there's there's trucks that are full. They, they go across the country and they don't deliver them to different stores and stuff like that because they just, they're too big of a truck to go into a city and do it. So Yellow Truck, it's, it's brought to a warehouse and a company like Yellow Trucking, uh, uh, I think they're called LTL companies, uh, they deliver it. They're smaller trucks and they distribute it to stores and restaurants and things like that. So, uh, so they had to close down because they just couldn't do it anymore. They couldn't pay the unions. They couldn't pay the pensions. Uh, and now they're gone. Uh, and, and that's terrible. But uh, it's not just, you know, there's, there's, there's an effect down the line uh, on this. And uh, one, of our, um, one of my listeners sent me an email uh, saying that it's affecting him. He's a trucker. And it's cost him money uh, because... You know, it, it affects other trucking companies. If you don't have ability to distribute the money, uh, then you got a big problem. You you don't have secondary distributors. So this email is from uh, Jason. I don't know where he's from. He says, hello, Lou. I'm just putting my two cents in on the yellow trucking company closure. Most of the media just says it's an LTL carrier that business use that uh, that businesses use that need to ship less than a truckload. And that's true. But that's not the big part of what they do, not by a long shot. The fact is, cities depend on LTL carriers for most of their goods because regular trucks can't get around or into a business like O'Reilly's, so they deliver a full load to Yellow, and then they take it to, let's say, New Jersey and deliver it to 30 O'Reilly's. That being said, I'm sitting at home right now because Yellow closed down, and we don't have a place to deliver Wix car oil filters to because Yellow had a contract with O'Reilly's in California. Wix is located in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I've lost 5,000 miles this week and don't even work for Yellow, plus a load of produce I would have picked up and brought back from, uh, from California to Carolina. 
Now, can you see how much yellow's closing is going to affect the supply chain? But they're just an LTL carrier, laughing out loud. How many stores are in New Jersey, New York, etc.? And they used to be two to 3,000 yellow trucks making deliveries in that area just to take a trip to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, by the way, of the PA Turnpike, and you will see them on the right side just before the Harrisburg exit. Hope you're stocked up, Blue. So he's saying that this is going to affect the supply chain. And if yellow trucking is having a problem, then I imagine other trucking companies of its size is as well. So the system's breaking down, and that's what we're seeing. And, you know, Biden wants to come out and say everything's great under Biden. Uh, and if you believe the corporate media, the U.S. economy is absolutely doing great. It's on a roll. And uh, going into the end of the year and next year, the election year, everything's great. Inflation is coming down. Um, employment's great. Um, and Americans are doing better. That's what they want you to believe. Even though inflation is out of control, and by the way, inflation is starting to creep up again. We're seeing it in oil prices, uh, which is going to drive everything, um, uh, literally. Uh, gasoline prices are rising dramatically now. We're in uh, the 380-something range nationally. Uh, and energy prices now are in the low to mid-80s a barrel. Uh, it looks like it's moving towards $100 a barrel. There's no way the Fed gets inflation under control with rising energy prices. Uh, and it's rising dramatically. Only a few months ago, what were we at? We were at three thirty-five, and here we are pushing, you know, three ninety and maybe four dollars. And in some cases, uh, I know somebody who lives in California texted me recently and said gasoline is five dollars a gallon there. So inflation's out of control. It's going to get worse later on in the year, which means what? It means the Fed can't stop. Raising interest rates, right? Uh, although I don't see how raising interest rates is going to affect the supply and demand situation uh, in, in the energy markets. Uh, there's other things going on there, but uh, they won't be able to lower interest rates or even stop raising them if inflation starts uh, moving up again. And I think it will. I think in the months to come, just due to rising energy prices, gasoline and so forth, um, we're going to see uh, major inflation issues. Uh, I, I think in the, the rest of the year and going into 2024, uh, we're seeing um, commercial real estates in free fall. I brought that to your attention. This will be the story over the next year. Has uh, as a huge amount of debt is, is coming due and has to be refinanced at higher rates where their collateral has dropped dramatically as people no longer are going to work in the big cities. Uh, hotels are empty. Um, you know, I was... Um, Considering, I had an opportunity to possibly go to New York City uh, uh, soon, and I'm not going to do it because I don't want to go there and risk my life. I, you know, thought it through. But I went on Expedia and I was looking at hotel room prices in New York City. Now, keep in mind, this is August. This is summertime. This is the big time of year for tourists to come to New York City. Uh, people come in to uh, go to the park, to uh, see a Broadway play, have a nice meal. And uh, I thought hotel prices were going to be extremely expensive and maybe prohibitively expensive. You know, normally in the summertime, when I look at hotel prices, they would be, uh, you know, three fifty to four fifty a night in a, you know, mid-star hotel. I mean, nothing great. Uh, I was surprised to see uh, higher-rated hotels in New York City for around $200 a night. Uh, and I even saw some decent hotels less than that. Uh, so that tells you the vacancy rate and the problem uh, that these hotels are having. 
unless you're the Roosevelt Hotel who's taking in uh, illegal aliens in our uh, capacity. It's sad to see. You see on TV, you see these people laying on the concrete, sleeping outside, waiting to somehow get processed and move to some kind of a, a shelter of some kind. Uh, but it's New York City's a mess right now, as is San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles, Portland, Oregon, Seattle. We, we can go on and on. Any place that has a blue tinge to it uh, is um, is a hellhole right now. Um, but the other the other hotels in uh, Manhattan are pretty empty. And everybody I talk to, clients, new clients coming in, they all tell me the same thing. I won't go to Philadelphia. I won't go to New York City. We used to love to go to Broadway, but no way we're going there now. And uh, that's showing up in, uh, in in hotel vacancies and so forth and so on. Which means that, again, these, these properties are going to become less valuable. And when they have to refinance their debt, their commercial real estate debt, which is not like mortgage debt on a home. You know, the, when you have commercial real estate you don't get a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. I mean, you get a three- to five-year loan. That's a balloon loan that has to be refinanced. So if you have a $100 million building uh, and now it's dropped to $75 million in market value, how do you refinance $90 million in debt? The collateral is less than the debt itself. Also, uh, the interest rates are so much higher and banks are cutting back credit. Uh, it's a perfect storm for um, a disaster uh, in the commercial real estate sector. And that's that's just starting now. We're starting to see hotels are, are going bankrupt. People are walking away from properties left and right. And um, this is going to severely uh, hurt the banking system. And, um, and uh, we'll keep an eye on it. But there's so many factors out there. Uh, yeah, Bidenomics is really working out well. And they're going to keep telling you that. They're going to keep telling you that no matter what's happening and what you see, don't believe your lion eyes. It's 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 not true. All right, um, what else? We had a bank failure this week. You probably didn't even hear about it, but um, the banking problem has not gone away. Uh, uh, banks are going to the Fed, taking money from them and giving them uh, bonds that are worth half of what their face value is in the. The Fed's giving them a loan of a full value of the bonds as they take them in just to keep these banks solvent if they can. Uh, but earlier this year, we we witnessed the second largest bank failure in history. Then we witnessed the third largest bank failure in history. Uh, then we witnessed the fourth largest bank failure in history. Uh, and then the Federal Reserve stepped in and implemented liquidity measures, facilities, they call them. In other words, they're bailing them out. And uh, now another bank has failed. On Friday, Heartland uh, Tri-State Bank collapsed last Friday, uh, and the FD, uh, FDIC stepped into control and sold the bank uh, to, uh, to another bank, uh, Dream First Bank of Syracuse, Kansas. Heartland Tri-State Bank of Eckerd, Kansas, failed on Friday. Uh, and as I said, the FDIC stepped in. Uh, and it seems like when a bank fails, the government's going to try to arrange it, be, uh, it to be absorbed by another bank in some kind of a sweetheart deal that you and I will probably backstop with taxpayer money. So we're going to see a, an incredible consolidation in the banking industry. Less and less banks, the bigger ones get bigger, uh, and the other ones disappear. So uh, so the economy is not as good as everybody says it is. Not everybody, but the government 
we see Fitch downgrading the United States debt from AAA. Uh, I think a, a very severe thing that happened this week. Interest rates are remaining high, and it looks like inflation is ready to rear its ugly head again. So uh, tough times here in America, but thankfully we have great leadership in the White House, and uh, everything is going to be fine. All right, let's take a short break. Don't go away. My name is Lou Skatigna. We'll be right back. AFM Investments' Lou Skatigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company. Member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through our Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Welcome back to The Financial Physician, where we talk money, markets, politics, and Anything that affects your life. My name is Lou Skatigna, Certified Financial Planner and Your Money Doctor. Twice a week, Sundays, we have our main podcast uploaded by 9 a.m. Eastern Time, as we have been doing for many years. And I've added a midweek podcast, not as long as the Sunday show, uh, although this midweek was almost an hour. Uh, So don't miss our midweek midweek, uh, podcast. Uh, We have about 50% of the people who listen to the the Sunday podcast, go to the midweek podcast, which I upload Wednesday by four or five o'clock. Uh, and as I said earlier in the program, if you want to be notified when you're linked over to Podomatic to listen to the podcast, follow the program. And if just by following it, as soon as I upload it, your email box is going to say a new podcast from Lou Skatigna, uh, and you can link right over to it as soon as it's uploaded. So be a follower to the program. Uh, that's at, uh, just go to the financialphysician.com, hit the most recent podcast. It'll bring you to Podomatic and click the follow button. Uh, and don't miss our midweek podcast because I don't repeat. I usually don't. Maybe it's, if it's real important, I'll repeat it on Sunday, but you're missing out on, uh, a good portion of an hour worth of, of this program that we, we catch you up on. A lot of times I don't get through all the stuff every every Sunday I don't get through all the stuff I want to talk about because the podcast will be just too long and uh, a lot of that stuff is covered uh, on Wednesday along with uh, breaking news between when I recorded the Sunday program and uh, the midweek program so you can always get the link at thefinancialphysician.com if you didn't listen to this week's midweek podcast just go there and link over uh, and catch up uh, on uh, You don't want to miss a, miss a minute of the financial position. So much to talk about. All right, let's talk about uh, something that's real important, and uh, and it's how to pick a financial advisor. And people don't know how to do this, 
And it's so important. Your financial success is going to be made or broken by the quality of financial advisor you have. Kind of like a medical doctor. I mean, you don't have a good doctor, the outcome is not going to be good for your health. If you don't have a good financial advisor, uh, the outcome to your financial health is going to be poor. Now, unfortunately, almost anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. And it's, I think they, I read recently there's 100 different designations of what a financial advisor is. Now, what is a financial advisor? Is it a life insurance agent who sells life insurance? Is it an accountant? Uh, is it a stockbroker? Uh, is it an estate planner? Uh, who is it? Uh, there's so many different people. Is it, is it a broker at uh, uh, one of the big Wall Street firms? Um, they all call themselves financial advisors with different titles, but what is a financial advisor? Well, somebody that advises you on finance. Uh, but an insurance agent is uh, an insurance advisor. They're going to advise you on insurance. They're going to try to sell you insurance or an insurance product, whether it's a life insurance policy or an annuity. And that's the thing. And I'm not picking out just insurance people, stockbrokers, uh, uh these, you know, people are out there to sell you something. Uh, and is a salesman a financial advisor? I don't know. Uh, so uh, you have to determine that for yourself. Uh, and you got to understand the conflicts of interest that go, go on in financial advisory world. So let's go over some of the regular advisors that are out there, the names that you'll come across and the differences between them. Let's start on the lower end of the totem pole. Let's start off with um, insurance agents. Now, I'm not denigrating insurance agents, but uh, they have a pretty narrow focus, which is insurance. Uh, and uh, whether it's life insurance, health insurance, property insurance, casualty insurance, long-term health care insurance, fixed variable annuities, uh, that's the universe of an insurance agent or an insurance broker. Uh, are they... Um, capable of uh, advising you on tax policy, uh, on corporate benefits, on estate planning, on end-of-life issues. Uh, well, maybe some can. Maybe some are qualified to do it. Most of them don't. Most of them are life insurance or health insurance salespeople. And there's a place for that in our society. Obviously, insurance is very important. Uh, and they cover risk management. And uh, when it comes to investments, uh, the only thing that really insurance people have is annuities, which are investment-like tax-deferred accounts, which I hate. I hate them. There's so many traps in annuities. Uh, do not buy or invest in annuity without getting a second opinion from someone who's not an insurance agent. I can't stress that enough. I had a Client in my office, I think it was Thursday. They had two annuities, and they're tax-deferred, right? Good thing, I guess. The problem is, is they bought them like 15 years ago uh, and invested about 150000 and now they're worth 700000 And if they take the money out of the annuity, all the profits come out first, and all the profits are taxable at ordinary income. No capital gains rates there. It's going to be ordinary income. So when I'm looking at them, I'm saying, look, you know, look at all the taxes you have to pay here. You have a tax trap here. And if you take all the money out, uh, then you're going to get hit with taxes at the maximum tax bracket. Uh, and if your kids inherit those annuities, they're going to pay the tax. 
So you can't get away from the tax. Another problem with annuities is the surrender fees, the high cost of management. It's just one of the more dreadful uh, places to put money, in my opinion. I coined the term the roach motels of investments. You can get in, but you can't get out. Uh, And that's a big problem. So insurance agents have their place. I wouldn't use them for investments. I would use them to insure my house, to insure my car, to insure my health, uh, to maybe give me long-term health care insurance or insure uh, casualty or or get an umbrella policy. All right, let's look second up the the ladder. It was a registered representative, also known as stockbrokers, account executives, investment brokers, uh, but they often refer to themselves as financial advisors. However, they are essentially security salespeople who are not required to have any financial planning training. Most work for brokerage firms licensed by the SEC and various stock exchanges. Registered representatives earn commissions on the securities they buy and sell for their clients. Uh, so you want to make sure that the recommendations are based on your financial interests, not theirs. Same is true with the annuities. Um, because annuities, uh, I forgot to say, pay the highest commissions to the insurance agents that sell them. Compared to mutual funds or, or, or anything else, it's the highest commission. And uh, human nature being what it is, uh, they, you know, what are they going to push? Something to make an 8% commission on or something to make a 2% commission on? Um, that's why it's important to understand uh, that they have your best interests at heart or theirs. And I would venture to guess that many of the annuities that I see my clients have, the only reason they have it is because they were sold it by somebody that made a big fat commission. And now they're locked up for seven, eight years without, with penalties, uh, tax issues if they try to take the money out down the line. Uh, it's quite dreadful. Um, so a registered represent, uh, representative is a tax, uh, is a stockbroker. Uh, there's two different types. Series six is an exam that you take that allows people to sell mutual funds and variable annuities, assuming they have insurance licenses as well for the annuities. Um, series seven uh, is the general securities exam uh, that allows these, the registered person to sell stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and variable annuities if insurance license. Uh, I remember the day I got my series six. So I started in the business in 1983. I was 23 years old, right out of college, uh, had a microbiology degree, knew nothing about finance or Wall Street or anything like that. And I stumbled upon this opportunity with a company called First Investors, an old mutual fund company still around. Uh, And uh, I... um, I'll never forget the day I went there for the interview. Uh, I wasn't going to go. My girlfriend at the time, my now wife, thankfully, uh, insisted I go for the interview. I put on my old um, uh, plaid suit that I had. It was dreadful. I think I wore it for my senior pictures. Um, And I got on a bus, and I went to the Port Authority bus terminal in New York City, and I got there an hour early for the interview, and I went into a, a Barnes & Noble bookstore in, uh, in the bus terminal, grabbed a book on finance, read everything I could about mutual funds, sat on the floor in, in the bookstore, I must have looked like an idiot, uh, and read as many chapters as I could on mutual funds, how they worked, went to the interview at First Investors, and I was the mutual fund expert. <laughs> they were very impressed with my knowledge of the work, workings of 
mutual funds, also known as investment companies uh, at the time. So I went and I got my Series 6 license. It was just studying in a, a book and then taking a test. And now I'm a financial advisor all of a sudden. Right? I'm 23 years old. I got my briefcase and uh, I borrowed some money, I think, from my parents to buy a real suit. Uh, and now I'm a financial advisor. And I remember how I thought I was all that walking down Broadway, going towards Penn Plaza uh, to the 10th floor of the building to Penn Plaza, right in front of the Madison Square Garden, still there, uh, 10th floor, first investors. And I was a, this real cool stockbroker. Um, but I, I was able to call myself a financial advisor. I knew nothing. Uh, I knew how to sell a mutual fund to somebody, and I built my business that way. Ultimately, I got my Series 7 a, a couple of years later and uh, have been uh, a licensed uh, investment broker, general securities broker for, it's going to be 40 years uh, in November. Uh, quite amazing to think about that. So stockbrokers and stockbrokers just realize that they make money by selling and buying, buying and selling, uh, and it might, may not necessarily be the kind of advisor that you want. Next is a registered investment advisor. Uh, this is a firm or an individual that receives compensation for providing advice on mainly securities and investments. That's why it's Registered Investment Advisor. Most RIAs, they're also called RIAs, of which I am a representative of an RIA, uh, charge management fees, uh, not commissions. They don't sell investments for commissions. Now, they can. I do, too. I'm licensed in both. I rarely do uh, a commission-based trade. I do here or there. Uh, I'm licensed to do so. Uh, and it's times that it's appropriate to do. It's not part of the um, registered investment advisory services I offer. Um, and uh, usually RIAs are fee-based. Now, we'll talk about fees versus commissions in a minute and why one may be better than the other. Um, uh, so uh, that's a registered investment advisor. You know, they're pretty limited unless they're trained in other things. Uh, like I am. Uh, I'm a certified financial planner, an accountant, uh, and a lot of other things. But uh, an accountant is the next person that could be a financial advisor. Uh, they are. They're going to advise you on taxes. Uh, they're going to advise you on being tax efficient. They're going to advise you on uh, things that you can do to lower your tax bill. Again, there's a place for that person in your life, obviously. Your taxes have to be filed correctly, and you want to pay the least amount of taxes possible. Uh, but are they the person I want to advise me on my investment portfolio? Is that the person I want to advise me on my estate plan or end of life issues uh, or my insurance policies? No, that's not that's not what they do. Now, rarely does somebody who is a financial planner and an accountant, and I'm one of those people, but I don't know anybody. I don't know any of my uh, contemporaries or colleagues that I know of, now I'm sure there are out there, that are also a tax accountant and a certified financial planner. That brings us to the highest designation in financial services, and that is certified financial planner, CFP. You see the commercials on TV, CFP professional. See your CFP professional, right? And, uh, and, and that, that's a good commercial because a CFP professional uh, is well-rounded in financial advice in all financial subjects. Financial, a certified financial planner is the only true real financial advisor that you could sit down with in a conference room and talk about investments, your corporate benefits, estate planning, taxes, how to take your pension, 
should you uh, uh, should you um, change your estate plan? Should you do a trust? Uh, all these things a certified financial planner can handle, including uh, your insurance coverages. That's one of the issues, or one of the topics that we're trained in. Uh, so to become a certified financial planner, which is the most prestigious financial advisor designation, the basic requirements are this. Um, at least three years experience in the financial services industry and a bachelor's degree. Or if you don't have a bachelor's degree, five years of financial planning experience. Now, you have to take a two-year course. Now, you could complete that sooner than two years, but it's pretty comprehensive. And you may, must pass a two-day exam that covers financial planning, taxes, insurance, estate planning, retirement planning. You must maintain a high ethical conduct. It's very easy to lose your designation uh, if you have ethic, uh, ethic problems. You have to complete 30 hours of continuing education every two years. Uh, and, and I just had to complete mine. My uh, two years was up uh, June 30th. I had to re, um, redo my uh, continuing education. Now, for me, it's pretty easy because I'm a 40-year veteran of this, and I've actually taught this stuff. So uh, continuing education for me is pretty simple. Uh, I pretty much know every answer of the quiz before even reading the textbook. Um, uh, and that's usually what I do. I go right to the quiz. The, I go right to the test for each subject and zip through it. But, but uh, you have to stay on the cutting edge uh, and understand uh, what's going on in investments, in taxes, in estate planning. And these things change all the time. And that's why it's so important to have a financial advisor that is required uh, to be up on all these things. And a certified financial planner is your guy or your gal. Uh, so not all um, uh, designations are the same. Like I said, anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. Uh, uh, but now uh, the powers that be, the f- regulatory authorities, are trying to tighten up on this, meaning you can't call yourself something if you don't have the education to do it. So I think it's going to get better. There's some really weak designations out there uh, that you could get with little effort and should be considered more of a marketing tool than evidence of ability or education or experience. Uh, And a number of states have taken actions to regulate the use of these designations because they're deceptive. Uh, Want a certified senior advisor. Uh, What is that? It's offered by the Society of Certified Senior Advisors. And this designation applies that the advisor is well-educated in senior financial matters when, in fact, the curriculum takes uh, three and a half days or self-study followed by an exam. It's hard to believe that all you, uh, that is needed to learn about the complexities of senior financial management uh, can be accomplished in three days. I've been doing this for uh, 40 years. Uh, I am a senior advisor. Uh, am I a CSA? No. I ain't taking it. I'm not taking that stupid test. Uh, But I've advised seniors for my entire career. I am an expert at senior financial issues. And I learned early in my career that the older people had all the money and the younger people had all debt. So I'm not stupid. I became an expert in senior and elderly financial issues. And 95% of my clients are either pre-retirement or retired people. And given that a good portion of my clients now are, are elderly, you know, like I said, I've been in the business 40 years. My, my firm, AFM Investments, uh, 
in uh, October of this year, we'll be 35 years old. Um, and many of my clients have been with me for decades. And unfortunately, they're passing on now. And I'm doing a lot of end-of-life issues, uh, Medicaid planning for nursing homes, gifting strategies, uh, how to deal with long-term health care issues. It, it's, it's a very complicated area. Um, uh, what other uh, weak designations are there? Certified senior consultant, uh, pretty much similar to um, uh, the other designation, pretty weak, a little stronger. It's 25 to 30 hours of self-study and three final exams. Uh, certified Fund Specialist, CFS. See, people take these these courses so they can put letters after their name. It helps them compete with CPAs and CFPs. Um, uh, they're supposedly to they take a self-study course in three short exams, and supposedly they're supposed to be experts at uh, mutual funds. Not really good. So... Uh, you got to make sure you know who you're dealing with when you're dealing with a financial advisor. Some of the questions you should ask, uh, and, and when you see a financial advisor, it probably makes sense to see more than one, uh, two or three, and find out who you're more comfortable with. You're interviewing them. You know, Don't feel like you're going in there that you know, you're low on a totem pole and they know everything. So you know, they're interviewing you and finding out if you're right for them in their practice. Uh, and that's what seasoned professionals, veterans do. We don't accept everybody. Um, whereas a younger person who needs every dime they can make off people will take anybody. I, I, clients are interview, prospective clients are interviewing me, but I'm also interviewing them. I've told people with a million dollars that we're not right for each other because they know it's just not going to work out. So you should prepare prepare a list of questions to ask a financial advisor. And I prepared a checklist now. All this stuff about financial advisors are in my book, The Financial Physician, How to Cure Your Money Problems and Boost Your Financial Health. The book is free of charge at my website, thefinancialphysician.com. It's a beautiful PDF file. Just download it, uh, email it, share it. It's free of charge. Um, And give it away. Give it to your kids. Give it to young people in your family. Uh, It's not a complicated book. It's very, very simple, actually. And I wrote it namely for younger adults going in to start their financial life so they don't make the mistakes. But if you're going in to, to meet with a financial advisor, these are some of the questions you want to ask me. What specific services can you provide me? Are you just going to sell me investments? Are you going to be able to counsel me on taxes or my estate plan? Or, or What do you do? How do you reach those objectives and in what time frames? How are you compensated? And this is a big one. Do you earn commissions? Do you charge hourly fees or do you charge annual fees based on assets? What is the difference and what's the pros and cons of each? And I'll go over that in a second. Uh, who other than you will be working on my account? Are you just going to you know, sell me and then hand it off to a junior rep of yours? Do you have an assistant that I'm going to deal with all the time? Uh, and you know how? What kind of access am I going to have to you? Now, in my practice, again, which is thirty-five years old, I'm fortunate. I have an assistant, and my clients know her very well. Evelyn, she's been with me, I believe, twenty-eight years. We've lost count, um, and uh, she's my right-hand person. You know, she, you know, I couldn't live without her. My clients love Evelyn. They deal more with Evelyn. They deal with me because they're calling in. Once the account is established and we've got a plan. Now they're just calling in because they need some money or they want to change their monthly income or it's something, you know, clerical that has to be dealt with. They want to change a beneficiary. They don't need me for that, but they deal with Evan. And our clients love Evelyn. 
and uh, hopefully she's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, anyway, so uh, who will be working on my account? Do you have good relationship with outside experts if you need to bring in a lawyer, an estate planner, an elder attorney? Uh, do you have access to those people? Insurance people if you don't do it yourself. Uh, how often will I get written financial statements? So am I going to get a statement every month to know what's going on? Can I come in anytime I want for review? Can I fire you if I don't like you anymore and uh, or the results aren't, you know, what uh, we expected? Yeah, you could file. Absolutely. You could file your financial advisor. They could also fire you too. <laughs> a lot of clients don't realize that. Um, I have great relationships with my clients, but I could tell you some horror stories with some terrible people that I, I've done business with um, that I had to fire uh, because they just were not the right kind of people I want to do business with. Um, then you have to ask them, well, what are your strong points? What's your advantages over other financial advisors? Make them make a pitch why they're good for you. Uh, also, the longer they've been in the business, the better. Uh, if I get a lawyer, I want to have a lawyer with 30 years experience versus a lawyer that just got a law school, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, a little gray hair or in my case, no hair probably is an advantage to you. Also, if someone could last in this business uh, for 25, 30, 40 years, obviously they're doing something right. Uh, and uh, and they, they must have picked up a few, uh, few uh, educational things along the way where they're probably uh, pretty proficient, uh, at least in the area that they, they, they specialize in, whether it's insurance, accounting, uh, investments, or in the case of a certified financial planner who's also an accountant, all of those. Uh, let's talk about compensation briefly, uh, fees versus commissions. For the first half of my career, I was a commission-based financial advisor, as was 95% of everybody else in the industry. And about 20 years ago, that changed. Um, now, many people in the industry are fee-based. Well, what's the difference? Well, if you go and see a commission-based person, their job is to sell you securities, sell you mutual funds, sell you annuities, and earn a nice big fat commission off of you, which they share with their, their, their firm that they work for. And then you're dead to them. They're not making any more money off of you. Uh, they need to go find the next new client because uh, they got to pay their bills next month, right? Or they have a quota to fill at their at their firm. Uh, and then you're dead to them. And unless you call them, you'll never hear from them. Unless they can turn your money over again and make a nice big fat commission off of you. Um, uh, but the markets go down. You're going to ride the markets down. You're going to ride the markets up. Uh, and unless you contact them, and say, hey, I'm losing money, you know, Joe, uh, what can we do here? Uh, well, if you want, I could move you to a more conservative posture. Well, why didn't you call me before I lost 50% of my money? So there's an inherent conflict of interest with most commission-based people. Uh, they many times they'll sell you the thing that makes them the most money, and they'll rationalize why that, why that should be. Uh, you're not going to have ongoing money management, and most of the time they're going to be able to give you little, if any, advice outside of securities. Fee-based advisors uh, are less likely to be caught in conflict of interest because they don't sell anything. Uh, they work on fees. Uh, and that fee is usually uh, an, annual commission, an annual fee based on the size of your assets. So if you know, you're being charged a 1.5% annual management fee, uh, well, on $100,000, that's $1,500 a year. 
to be your advisor. Um, if it's uh, 200000 3000 a year, it's all based on assets under management. And, and that's kind of important because a fee-based advisor is on the same team as you. Uh, we're on the same team because if your account goes down in value, our fees go down because it's based on the value of your account at the end of each quarter. If your account goes up, uh, then the fees charged on that account go up as well because it's based on the value of your account. So fee-based advisors don't want you to lose money because they're losing money too. Uh, They want you to make money when you can because they make more money too. And the conflict of interest of trying to push a product on you because of the commission structure uh, is no longer an issue. So uh, fee-based people uh, are usually more well-rounded and usually have less of a conflict of interest. And you've heard the word fiduciary uh, lately. It's been a big deal. Um, a fiduciary means that they will always put your interest ahead of theirs. Uh, the client's interest always goes first. And unfortunately, with many commission-based uh, advisors, they are not working as fiduciaries. They're working as fiduciaries for themselves and their firms, but not necessarily working uh, for as a fiduciary for you. All certified financial planners and all registered investment advisories, fee-based, are considered fiduciaries. So again, just like you get a bad doctor, you're going to have a bad outcome with your health. You have a bad financial advisor, you're going to have a bad outcome with your financial health. So make sure you interview a number of them. Uh, Go by your gut. Your gut will tell you many times uh, how you feel about somebody. Uh, And uh, when you uh, vetted that person, make sure, check them out on something called Broker Check. Broker Check is a website where you can check uh, any uh, registered broker uh, if they have any disciplinary uh, history and that you want to know before you do business with anybody. Has that person been sued before? Have had any uh, fines or, or issues uh, in the past? Um, that's one of the things you really want to look at before you do business with anybody. But take your time. There's no rush to do it. Interview a couple of financial planners. Preferably go with a financial planner, a certified financial planner. Uh, that has some experience, uh, long, longer experience I have, the more experience, the better. And this is the most important thing you'll do uh, for financial success. All right, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about the third indictment of President Trump as uh, we move closer and closer to banana republic status as a special counsel, Jack Smith, a rabid anti-Trumper, um, and uh, going after him again, I mean, it just doesn't end. I mean, it's starting to get comical now. It's not getting comical. I got to tell you, I'm pissed. I'm, I'm starting to lose it. Uh, and it's been very difficult for me to maintain my cool talking about this because this is this is something you expect to see in third world countries, communist countries, China, Venezuela, where uh, your political opposition is attacked legally and with all the power of the current administration. This is this is out of control. And I blame the Republicans. How? Where are they? Yeah, you have some of them that are, uh, you have uh, Matt Gates, who we're going to talk, listen to in a second. You got Jim Jordan. You got a few of them. But, you know, most of the Republican Party are rhinos. Uh, the the Romneys of the world, uh, the, the, the Grahams, uh, even McCarthy, uh you know, lost staring into deep space, Mitch McConnell, another loser. Um, And and the thing is, the Democrats, they stay together, they have a goal, and they achieve it. The Republicans are splintered, they 
And, and the thing here is that the, the Republicans always believe that, well, we got to play by the rules. Well, to the Democrats and the left in this country, there is no rules. They don't care about rules. They don't care about laws. They don't care about how inappropriate something looks like these ridiculous indictments against the, the, the front runner to win the presidential election. The rest of the world scoffs at us. They really do. Uh, so uh, he was uh, indicted for more indictments regarding January 6th, of all things. Um, and this is an interesting indictment because what it, the, the, the crux of the whole thing is Trump knew that the election was fair and pristine and perfect and there was no fraud involved, even though they shut down counting in six swing states all at the same time. Trump was ahead big time. And overnight, magically, all these votes came in for Biden. And then after a few days later, just enough to get Biden over the finish line in every one of these states, except one, I believe. Uh, And the level of the fraud is just like nothing we've ever seen before. I mean, you see truckloads of ballots coming in, Republicans being kicked out. There's videos of Democrats running the same ballots through the counting machines. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, And it was all part of a big plan to get rid of Trump. And that plan is still in action right now. They can't let Trump go back to being president. And the question is why? What do they fear so much? They love the swamp just the way it is. They're all getting rich off of it. They love the power that they have. It's a cushy little club. And Trump is not one of them. He can't be bought. He can't be influenced. And he wants to draw, uh, drain the swamp. And he's not part of them. And they've tried to destroy him since the day he came down the escalator. And I was talking about this with my wife in a very agitated way last night. Um, that they're, they're going to assassinate him. That's what they're going to do. Because Trump's on his way to winning again. And there's only one way to stop him. Uh, and I hate to say this. I mean, you know, we haven't had a political assassination in this country in quite quite some time. Uh, and uh, they're ruthless. The left, the Marxist, there's a revolution going on in this country. You have to be aware of that. It's in your face now. They don't even care. They don't care that the Justice Department is weaponized. They don't care what it looks like. There's no rules to them. They have a complicit media behind them trying to cover up everything that Hunter Biden's done and Joe Biden has done, no matter how stark the evidence is. And we'll talk about that in a second. So basically what they're saying is Trump knew about it and he lied uh, and committed a fraud against the United States. Now, first of all, how do you go into someone's head and tell you what what they believe? And trust me on this one, Trump believes the vote was rigged against him. And there's enough evidence that he's right. I would bet everything, everything I had, that that was not a free and fair election in that Trump one. Are you trying to tell me Joe Biden who stayed in his uh, basement, the whole campaign, got 81 million votes? Are you kidding me? A senile old man who's only getting worse by the day. Um, Totally impossible. There's just too many things, too many anomalies. And the biggest one is, why did six states stop counting with Trump ahead at midnight? It's never happened before. Who gave that order? 
That's what I want to know. How, how did they get that order? That they all stopped at the same time. And there's no explanation as to why. And we know why. They wanted to calculate how many votes they were behind and then manufacture those votes and ship them in in trucks in the middle of the night um, and get just enough votes to win. It's pretty sickening. And, and you never think you would see that in the United States of America. Now, um, Mark Levin, uh, who shares my um, agitation when he talks about this stuff, uh, he was on, I think it was Hannity, uh, and he gave an explanation of what's happening here and how this is such a crap indictment, it's ridiculous, and that there's no way that this, first of all, to prove this to, how do you prove to a jury what somebody was thinking and what they believed at the time? How do you do that? Beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump knew the election was fair and he just made all this up to try to usurp power from the duly elected president, Joe Biden. And that his speech was what caused the January 6th riot. And in his um, uh, charges against Trump, he conveniently left out that Trump said to go protest peacefully and patriotically. He conveniently left that out of the indictment. Again, just to, to try to twist it to make it look worse than it is. Um, so let's, uh, I'm going to play a little bit of Mark Levin. Listen to his outrage. I was going to explain the legal aspects of this, but obviously Mark Levin, being a constitutional attorney, uh, does a better job than I would. <laughs> Let me read something to you. 18 United States Code, Section 2384. That's the seditious conspiracy statute. Why isn't that in this prosecutorial document? I remember on this network and other networks, they said it was a slam dunk. Seditious conspiracy was in all the media. If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States, contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Mr. Prosecutor, I notice this isn't in your, your bill of particulars. Why is that? And why is it that the media is not saying he wasn't charged with a slam dunk charge? Why? Because he didn't commit that act. Let's go to the next one. Remember this one? 18 U.S. Code, Section 2383. Rebellion or insurrection. Isn't January 6th Insurrection Day? Well, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title, or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. He's not charged with insurrection. So what the hell is he charged with? Why do we even have this document? Well, let's go through it. Let me educate you, Bill Barr. You're making a fool of yourself on CNN and everywhere else now. You should take your personal animus out of this. And stand up for the country and the rule of law, because they're destroying our electoral system, as I'll explain in a second. 
Let's look at these four charges. You know what they had to do? They had to go back to a statute that was first passed in 1871. It was called the Ku Klux Klan Act. Post-Civil War. Why was this passed? It was passed because Ulysses S. Grant was chasing down the Klan in the South to destroy it. And when the Democrats took over the House of Representatives, they cut off his funding so the Klan survived. Reconstruction was destroyed because the Democrat Party is evil. Let me go on. Mr. Attorney General, count 18 two, 18 U.S.C. section 1512K. Count three is tied to that, also 1512. What is this? These are statutes that were passed in 2002. You know what they're called? The Enron statutes. To fill a gap that was that they felt need to be applied because they didn't have what was necessary to charge certain executives with obstructing justice. This has nothing to do with what took place on January 6th or before January 6th or after January 6th. This matter that they have used against protesters on January 6th is extremely controversial and the Supreme Court hasn't decided it yet. But cases are going to the Supreme Court on these counts. How dare this prosecutor use these statutes against the former president of the United States? Uh, let me uh, stand corrected. That was uh, Fox and Friends he was on um, a couple of days ago, Mark Levin. And uh, he's visibly upset, uh, and, and rightfully so, because he sees this for what it is. And he lays out, this has nothing to do with January 6th. They're just trying to manufacture, again, another indictment against the president. The whole idea is to keep him in courts uh, instead of campaigning next year. And you want to talk about election interference. Uh, it's ridiculous. And all legal scholars, Jonathan Turley, um, Dershowitz, are all saying this is, this is a ridiculous charge. But they don't care. See, that's the thing. You know, usually in the past, they wouldn't bring charges against anybody, let alone uh, the next president of the United States and the front runner and the political opposition to your administration, they would never do that unless it was a really, really significant case. They don't care now. That's the thing. That's the scary thing about the movement that you're seeing now, this revolution, this leftist revolution, and, and that's what it is. Um, people better wake up to it, especially Republicans who are worthless right now, except for a few of them. Um, and uh, it's they don't care. Now, Dershowitz says it, Turley says it, uh, the appellate court or the Supreme Court is never going to allow this because it's an attack on free speech. You can't tell somebody that they don't have a right to complain about an election. Think about what happened. The election was stolen from a sitting president who won overwhelmingly and was ahead the night before, won Florida, won Ohio, won uh, Iowa. No president ever lost after losing those state, after winning those states. Uh, and it was a, a blowout. I went to bed thinking Trump was reelected. And that was before they stopped counting. I didn't see that part of it. I woke up in the morning. I told my wife, the fix is in. Look at that. And then I found out that they had stopped counting. But the Supreme Court's going to throw it out. The appellate court will throw it out. They may even get a conviction in D.C. because D.C. is 95% Democrat and any Republican will be indicted. Uh, and if you get a jury uh, in D.C., it's, it's almost 100% that they'll, they'll, they'll convict any Republican, especially Trump. Um, that's why they're trying to move the uh, case to West Virginia or some other place that'll be fair. And by the way, they named the most rabid leftist Obama-appointed judge who's been horrible to any uh, January 6th defendants. Um, how do you think she's going to treat this case? 
It's just not fair. It's a railroad job. Uh, but, you know, they don't care if it's going to be overturned next year or the year after. They don't care. The whole idea is to muddy the waters for Trump, make people think twice about whether or not he's a crook, um, and keep him from campaigning and keep him in courtrooms. Uh, you know, the January case uh, with the documents is slated for May. I mean, just a few weeks before the convention. And he, he's supposed to be in a courtroom and not out campaigning? You want to talk about election interference. I think Trump may go to the Supreme Court and say, this got to end because this is election interference. And, you know, by the time it goes through the system, uh, you know, this election will be over uh, and maybe get some kind of a stay of, of these things. We'll see what happens there. Uh, but let's go back to Mark Levin because I'm playing a lot of this because he's upset. He knows the law and he lays it out better than I ever can. Then we have count one, 18 U.S.C. 371, cheating the government, interfering with legitimate government authority. This was aimed at financial fraud, federal contractors, others who were ripping off the federal government. This indictment, Mr. Barr, is crap. And the reason I didn't bring insurrection and seditious conspiracy is because there was no insurrection and seditious conspiracy. I'm not done. I want to say something to Mike Pence, who's turned out to be quite the weasel. Mike Pence fought like hell. He didn't want to testify in front of this grand jury. He didn't want to give his notes to this grand jury. Now we know why. He's scribbling them down in the meeting. Well, he had to give them up. Then he gives them up, and now he comes out. He's like, uh, all of a sudden, he's a drama queen. I said no. No, because his notes are in there. He's flipped completely. And I stopped a constitutional crisis. You did? Well, Mark Levin is, is right about Mike Pence. What a weasel he's turned out to be. You know, now that he's running for president, president against Trump, I think he's got 1% of the vote or something. He may not even make the debate. He's begging people to send him $1 donations because if you get a certain number of donations, no matter how much it is, uh, it helps you qualify for the, for the debates. He has no chance of being president. And he's destroying... Uh, his uh, popularity with the MAGA crowd, uh, just the disloyalty. Uh, you know why? Because he's a rhino. He's one of those. He's one of them. And that's why he didn't do his job on, um, by, on January 6th. He had the right to say, wait a second, got to stop this process because there is, uh, there is protestation by a significant number of congressmen uh, that was saying, and, and, and the rules state that if there is that kind of opposition, they have to investigate it. So he's making it sound like it wasn't his purvey uh, or his uh, right or responsibility to make sure that this was a fair vote. Um, so this is what he had to say. You want to talk about a weasel? Listen to this guy. On this point, it wasn't just that they asked for a pause. Uh, the president uh, specifically asked me and his gaggle of, uh, of crackpot lawyers asked me to literally reject votes, to, which would have resulted in... Uh, in the issue being turned over to the House of Representatives, and literally chaos would have ensued. What a weasel. Uh, chaos would have ensued. That's No, the process would have played itself out. Like, it's, ha it's happened many times in our past, in elections, if you research it, uh, where it came to the House of Representatives. Uh, that's their job, to decide what electors to take and, and, and to investigate this. He's a rhino. He didn't want Trump, even though he served for Trump. I think he was happy that Biden won. Because, again, he serves the deep state. 
uh, and now he's trying to become president. You know, he plays he plays up this. Uh, uh, I'm a Christian. I'm above board. Uh, you know, I'm a family man. I've heard rumors about him. Uh, whether they're true or not, I don't know. But I've heard a number of them that he's part of the pedophilia network of all these elites in Washington. I don't want to go there. Isn't it amazing how all these uh, Republicans running for president all of a sudden are anti-Trump? The worst is that fat pig, Chris Christie, uh, my governor in the past. I used to like him until uh, he put his fat body into the beach chair on uh, Island Beach State Park when uh, all the beaches and parks were closed because of a budget impasse, but not closed for him and his family. That was the end of him. Also, hugging and uh, being starstruck when Obama came just before the election after Sandy, uh, which may have influenced um, the election. Uh, not that I, in hindsight, I want Rami to win. Um, another loser. Uh, then you have Nikki Haley, who he named as her his UN pre- uh, secretary. Um, uh, it, 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 it's just one. These people have no loyalty whatsoever. Uh, and Trump's on his own. It's him and the people. You see these rallies he's having now. He's more popular now than he ran the first time. I mean, he's filling arenas and stadiums, and it's it's only going to get bigger and bigger as people realize the persecution and the, uh, the weaponization of the political system and the Justice Department here in the United States. Uh, I want to get back to the rest of uh, Mark Levin uh, because he's the only one out there that gets passionate, uh, and, and, and he knows the law, uh, he knows history, and he's absolutely right in everything he says. What are the rules now? What now are the rules for running, challenging, and disputing elections, and who decides? When can a candidate rely on legal advice? We actually have lawyers who are now indicted for giving legal advice the government disagrees with. Is a president not free to discuss decisions about the elections with his vice president? Right. Vice president is free to do whatever he wants, as this vice president did. Is a president free to publicly dispute election results without being indicted? Oh, he knew he lost, but he said he didn't lose. So what? Either way, it doesn't matter. The electoral process is now not purely political. In our Constitution, it's purely political. You know who ultimately decides elections? Congress. The electors go to Congress. Congress decides who's in, who's out. If there's two slates, Congress decides. Congress gets to gather all the evidence at once. It's done it for 247 years, up to this indictment. Now all of a sudden, a department that didn't exist when the Constitution was written, U.S. attorneys who didn't exist, special counsel who didn't exist, even judges that didn't exist, they are now going to look back with 2020 hindsight decide if what a president says is appropriate, if they think it's false. What the hell is going on here? I will tell you what the hell is going on here. This guy, Jack Smith, has now destroyed our electoral system. Nobody knows the rules of the game. Nobody knows when challenges can be made or cannot be made. Now they're going to figure out what they're, what you're thinking and what you believe and so forth. And Bill Barr goes on that crap network, CNN, and he talks about Well, you have the right to speak. There is the freedom of speech, but you don't have a right to to say things in a conspiracy. Conspiracy to what? So an outraged Mark Levine, uh, 
I'm an outraged loose Katigna. I, I just can't take it anymore. It, it's just so aggravating what's happening in our country right now. And you all tell me it. I get your emails. I see clients in my conference room. Everybody says the same thing. What's happening to our country? The border's wide open. Crime's out of control. Uh, we have inflation. I mean, everything's going down the tubes. Anything that the Democrats get their hands on, a city, the country, uh, a state, uh, they run it into the ground. They take away our rights. They try to control you. They try to shove down your throat, their left-wing woke agenda, and it's not working anymore. People are going to push back. They're starting to now. They're doing it with their pocketbooks. Look at Bud Light. Look at what's happened to Disney stock. People have had it. And... uh, we're getting to the point, you know, most Americans are peaceful people. We don't pay attention to things too much. We just have, want to feed our families and get ahead in life and get ready for retirement. But people have had it now, especially when we start messing with their kids, with the gender stuff that's going on. It's out of control. Now, I mentioned that Republicans are, I think I hate the Republicans more than the Democrats. They have no backbone. They're all part of the swamp, all part of the system. And uh, Democrats stand together. Rarely do you see anybody vote not with the Democrats uh, on anything, but the Republicans are wishy-washy and this. Like I said, you know, they want to play by the rules. They don't know how to get in the street and have a street fight. The Democrats do. They'll do anything necessary to retain power. They'll steal an election. They'll cheat. They don't care. But meanwhile, the Republicans don't know how to harvest ballots and everything else. They, they don't do that. Well, they better learn to do it because otherwise we're never going to win an election again and the Republican Party is going to disappear. And one thing, too, now, you know, Trump's got a ton of money coming into his campaign. But the Republican National Committee and these individual campaigns for Senate and Congress, they're not getting the money. They're not getting my money. I've stopped donating to the Republican Party uh, a long time ago. And, uh, and, And that tells you a lot. People are fed up with the Republican Party. And they better get their act together and they better, you know, step up. How much more information do they need on Mayorkas, Garland, and Biden that they wouldn't start impeachment for these people? The Democrats impeached Trump twice on a phone call once. They don't care. But again, the Republicans, oh, we have to go through the process, see what kind of evidence. What else evidence do you need on the Bidens right now? What evidence do you need on Mayorkas? with the border wide open and he comes to Congress and says, we have a secure border. I mean, they lie right to your face. And then Garland running the most corrupt justice department, totally weaponized against the other opposition party. It's just ridiculous. But there is one Republican I like a lot and always have, Matt Gates. He's not afraid to speak his mind. And he kind of came on a Congress floor today, or maybe it was an interview. It was an interview. And he's saying that Congress could call Trump for, as a witness and give him immunity Congress has the right to confer immunity on anybody. Uh, and maybe that maybe that's a, a way to end this ridiculous political charade, this third banana republic uh, weaponization of law enforcement against the political opposition. Uh, listen to what he had to say about this possibility. First, House Republicans should immediately demand that Jack Smith present himself for a transcribed interview before the Judiciary Committee in the next 15 days. If he does not do that, we should send a subpoena 
If he ignores the subpoena, we should hold him in criminal contempt of the Congress so that he is the first prosecutor in American history to be prosecuting a case while himself under criminal contempt. And if Merrick Garland doesn't enforce that criminal contempt, then we ought to impeach Merrick Garland. And by the way, while we're doing all of that to showcase how political and indeed dirty this has all become, we can utilize congressional immunities to immunize President Trump. 18 U.S.C. 6002 subpart 3 gives any committee or subcommittee of the Congress the ability to subpoena a witness, bring them in, and functionally immunize them. And if we are not going to stand up for Congress's equities when it comes to election interference, when it comes to misuse of the DOJ, this is all an effort to try to distract us from the very real crimes committed by Hunter and Joe Biden. I wish all the Republicans... um we're like Matt Getz. Uh, if they have the Republicans have the ability to do it, do it. You don't think the Democrats would under that same situation? Of course they would. Uh, let's see where that goes. Um, but uh, you know, Trump's indicted this week a day after Hunter Biden's business partner Devin Archer appeared before uh, Congress and said that Biden was involved in their business dealings. He called in, was on speakerphone at 20 business meetings. But meanwhile, Biden said he had nothing to do with his son's business, didn't know anything about it. Come on. Now, the Democrats are out there saying, well, uh, there was no link. You know, he just talked about the weather and, you know, pleasantries. Look, the way the game's played is it was a display of power to business people in foreign countries that, look, I have my father on speed dial. I can call him and talk to me anytime. And uh, you could buy influence. That's the whole message. That's the way the game is played in Washington. But, of course, uh, uh, the Democrats in Congress and, of course, the media uh, run cover for the Bidens while, you know, attacking Trump every minute. And it seems every time bad news comes out on the Bidens, the next day, Trump's uh, indicted for something to get the Bidens off the front page of the newspaper, although they're not there anyway, uh, but to change the conversation. Uh, It's amazing. uh, Who is it? Uh, uh, It was Waters, I think, first laid it out. (laughs) <laughs> Everything that happened, what happened the next day, the very next day, and it's just not by coincidence. It's totally, totally infuriating. It really is. All right, let's play uh, first uh, Congressman Goldman from New York. Uh, he came out of the hearing. Uh, he looked vis- visibly shaken and panicky. He didn't look very comfortable, if you know body language. And, of course, he ran out to say that, you know, there was no connection between Biden's business and graft uh, meeting Hunter and uh, Joe Biden. Of course there wasn't. What do you think he's going to, It's going to, you know, in a phone call say something? Like, hey, pay my son and uh, I'll take care of business for you. That's not the way it's done. Uh, if anybody knows how the mafia works, it's pretty much like that. There's a whisper in your ear. Uh, it's not done on a phone. Although Hunter Biden is stupid enough to put it in an email uh, on his laptop. But, you know, evidence doesn't matter when it comes to the Bidens. Uh, where uh, evidence uh, doesn't matter when it comes to Trump because they'll just make it up and the press will run with it like the Russian hoax. Uh, like this indictment on January 6th for believing that you knew that the election was pristine and fair. Uh, and you went out there and lied and said it was stolen. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Talk about it. This is a very important case because it's an attack on free speech, saying that you have no right to say something. So we're going to steal the election from you, but you have no right to complain about it because that's uh, somehow a felony. Uh, 
And I said, Mark Levine laid it out really good. So listen to Goldman, this guy coming out, uh, trying to defend Joe Biden. They were talking about the weather. So, so to confirm, you're saying that the speakerphone conversations, they don't seem concerning to you because there was no specifics about business. And it just seemed like it was clear that it was clear that it was part of the daily conversations that Hunter Biden had with his father. Um, and it was and, and sounds like most of the time uh, now President Biden didn't even know who the people he was at dinner. He was just asked to say hello. Uh, and he would, you know, talk about the the way he described it several times. They asked over and over and over. He described what the weather was, how uh, how what's going on on your end. He the the witness was very very consistent that none of those conversations ever had to do with any business dealings or transactions. They were purely what he called casual conversations. Yes. Of course they were. Uh, casual conversations, nothing to see here. And of course, uh, CNN, which is laughing stock of journalism, if you want to call it that. Uh, again, I played in a midweek uh, podcast, MSNBC, throwing cover uh, for the Bidens. But listen to CNN. Again, they're going with the same theme that he didn't discuss business on those phone calls. Well, of course he didn't. So Goldman's sort of explaining that Archer qualified uh, the, the topics of discussion on these phone calls as niceties that Biden sometimes didn't even know who was um, in, on the other line with his son Hunter. And, you know, sources in the room telling CNN now that Archer did not point the finger directly at any sort of a connection between Joe Biden and his son's foreign business dealings and rather, you know, um, said that he was, that Hunter Biden was selling the illusion of said access. Boris? Really a stunning development, Zach, when you consider that Republicans were selling this as, as a breakthrough that would link Hunter's business dealings with his father. Instead, business was apparently never discussed, according to Devin Archer. Zach Cohen, thanks so much for the reporting. Brianna? Must be nice to have the media on your side. Boy, uh, I've been on the Republican conservative side my whole life. Uh, and it's been like having... Uh, I feel like the, the the Washington generals against the Harlem Globetrotters. And uh, if you have the media on your side, including big tech and social media, boy, it's really hard to get your message out. It's And it's real easy for them to spin things uh, in a way uh, that is the narrative that they want. Now, if you recall uh, back in June, Pride Month, um, you know, we have one day to celebrate, celebrate or mourn our dead service people Memorial Day. Uh, we have one day to honor our veterans. We have one day to commemorate uh, D-Day. Uh, but we have a whole month to commemorate and celebrate uh, sexual deviation in the form of LGBTQ plus 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 LMNOP XYZ. Um, they're running out of alphabet and soon they're going to go into numbers. I, they're ready there. One, right? I don't know what all these things mean. Uh, it's just insanity. Um, but uh, if you recall, uh, the White House hung a rainbow flag uh, in the middle of the portico of um, the west, uh, um, the South Lawn, and with two American flags on either side, prominently displaying the gay pride flag. Oh, by the way, do you know that the rainbow is a symbol uh, in the Bible of God's love or something like that uh, of humanity? And they've corrupted it to uh, sexual deviancy. Um, there's evil in the world, my friends. There is big evil. And then we're fighting a war of good versus evil. And so far, evil's winning. 
I think good's going to win in the end of it. Anyway, so Senate Republicans recently introduced a measure which would forbid the flying of any flag except the American flag over government buildings, over, over government buildings. Only one Democrat voted for it, and it missed passage by one vote. The Democrat that voted for it um, was Manchin, Joe Manchin, who may be running as an independent, uh, which would be the nail in the coffin for the Democrats if he does. Uh, it would split their vote. Um, do you believe, but there's not one Democrat uh, in the party besides Manchin, uh, who is more of a independent because he's from West Virginia, uh, don't believe that we should have the sovereignty of just the American flag on American buildings. No, they want Black Lives Matter flag. They want a, a gay pride flag. We had gay pride flags flying all over U.S. embassies around the world. Why is this such an important topic? Why do we have flags for other things? Good things that people do and other people. Why does it have to be sexually oriented? For obvious reasons, because it's demonic. Um, so uh, it, 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 it's not the biggest deal in the world, but you can't get more than one Democrat out of 51 to believe that this that the American flag should be sacred on the White House, Congress. It's unbelievable. What if somebody wanted to fly a, a different type of flag that's conservative in nature, an anti-abortion flag? You think that would fly? I don't think so. At least not when there's a Democrats in control. All right, let's end with this. Um, a new poll from Gallup finds that confidence in the U.S. military is at its lowest point since the 1990s. Do you think this might be related to the inability of the military to meet its recruitment goals with all the wokeness that's going on? So this is a national security issue as we may be heading into World War III. Um, and you have confidence in the military at the lowest it's been. In twenty-something years, um, a survey of sixty. Um, fa- a survey found sixty percent of Americans have confidence in the military, matching the lowest level since nineteen ninety-seven. Confidence has not been lower since nineteen eighty-eight, when it sunk to fifty-eight percent. The poll found declines in military confidence across political parties. While Republicans remain the mostly uh, most likely to express confidence in the military, the rate has decreased by more than 20 percentage points over the past three years. I wonder why. Maybe Afghanistan. Maybe uh, the wokeness that we've been telling you about here. Maybe the forced vaccinations on our military. And that's coming back to haunt us as we're losing pilots to myocarditis. And we're, we're a weakened military. Biden comes out and says we don't have any ammunition left. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Why, why would we have confidence in our military? Uh, the defense secretary and, uh, and the, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, highly compromised, woke, have an agenda, more concerned about pronouns in the military than military readiness. But meanwhile, uh, they want to bring us head straight into a, a third world war with nuclear powered Russia, and maybe China. Meanwhile, there's no confidence. I wonder what the confidence level inside the military is. It must be pretty low, the morale. 
Independents are least likely to have confidence in U.S. military with a decline of 13 percentage points from 68% to 55%. So now that the U.S. is completely withdrawn from both Iraq, Afghanistan, um, confidence in the military has continued to decline. And it's not that we've left Afghanistan. It's the way we did it. The Democrats, the Biden administration are destroying everything that's good and dear to America. Our sovereignty at the border, let everybody in. They don't care. Destroy the military with wokeness, with um, absence of readiness and ammunition. Uh, Destroy the the criminal justice system. Uh, Oppress uh, political speech. Uh, and speech in general, uh, it's really quite breathtaking how quickly this is happening. And American people better wake up. Because if you don't, you're going to lose your country. You're going to lose your freedom. And you're going to be living under a one-party authoritarian government. And this is exactly the way it's happened historically. And if the people just are, are passive and let it happen, let the minority run right over you, well, we're all in trouble. I know I sound a little pissed today. I am. I am. And I'm nervous. I'm scared for the future of the country. I can't believe the things that I'm seeing now. I didn't think it would be possible in America. And if we don't check it now, it's only going to get worse. And I'm telling you, a lot of people don't like Donald Trump. I argue with my Republican friends who said, oh, maybe we need somebody else that's not so controversial. Absolutely not. He's the only guy. Not DeSantis, not Pence, nobody else. Not Chris Christie fat pig. Uh, No. And they're not the one. We need a guy who could fill a stadium with patriotic people who are passionate about the future of the country. A man that can't be bought. There's a reason why this man has been attacked savagely nonstop for years now. Because they're afraid of him. Because he can make the difference. Anybody else is just part of the establishment. And that's why they're throwing indictment after indictment. Now there's going to be one coming out of Georgia. It doesn't end. And my fear is that it's going to end uh, uh, in a bad way for Donald Trump if they're not successful uh, with these legal challenges and everything else they're trying to throw at him. And right now, he's a big front runner, and he's going to win the election. Uh, even I don't even think they could cheat enough this time around. Uh, so uh, let's see where this goes. And we'll report it to you here on The Financial Physician um, each and every week. We get together twice. We get together Sunday morning. I upload the main long podcast uh, by 9 a.m. Sunday morning, usually earlier. Uh, and uh, we we'll do the midweek podcast uh, about half the, half the time as the Sunday show. That goes up 4 o'clock on Wednesday. Be sure when you go to Podomatic to listen to the show that you follow the program so you'll get an email instantaneously when I upload Um, If you want to get in touch with me, love your emails, lots of great comments uh, from our listeners. If there's something you want me to to cover or if there's something you want, you know, uh, you want me to read your email uh, online uh, on the show, I'm happy to do that. Um, uh, My email is lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. And if you're local here in New Jersey and you want to come in for a no obligation, no cost, uh, comprehensive review of your finances. And let me see what you're doing. See if we can't point you in the right direction. Uh, we're heading into the fall. 
and I expect it to be extremely volatile in financial markets. So maybe now, more than ever, is a good time to come in for a no-obligation financial review. My name's Lou Skatigna. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you on the Midweek Podcast. And just remember, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far. See you next time.